If you're new with us, uh, we are doing a series on the Royal Psalms. There are about 10 uh, Royal Psalms in the Psalter, and this is a week two. These are Psalms that speak about uh, the Davidic monarchy and how uh, many of the statements that we read about in these Psalms uh, can only be fulfilled uh, in the King of Kings, Jesus himself. And we're looking today at the King's wedding. I've been looking forward to this one uh, for some time, Psalm 45. Let's pray together, and we'll jump in. Father, we're grateful today to study the scriptures, grateful today to know that we have a king who reigns and a king who delights in his bride. And so we pray together uh, today that you would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things from this passage, that we may have greater affections for our king, the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. What are your favorite love songs of all time? Don't say free bird. Think about the uh, slow dancing ones. Uh, According to Billboard magazine, the number one love song of all time is Endless Love by Lionel Richie and Diana Ross. Some of you youngsters don't know who that is and you don't know uh, these either. There are others on the list. Uh, How Deep Is Your Love by the Bee Gees in 1977. Or I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. Or, I Can't Stop Loving You, Ray Charles, 1962. Today we're looking at the greatest love song in the Psalms. In fact, it is, it is very unique. It, there's not another psalm like this. It's a wedding song, a love song about the king and his groom. The closest parallel to Psalm 45, and then if we had time, I would show you a lot of these connections, is the book of Song of Solomon. And I know we initially had planned to go through a Song of Solomon, and we've postponed that. But we will get there, Lord willing, in due time. Psalm 45 is very uh, similar to that. Now, the superscription uh, at the top of the psalm, uh, which says, To the choir master, according to the lilies, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song, that is in the Hebrew text, the the title that the translators put over top there, the publishers, like, uh, Your throne, O God, is forever, is not. But that superscription is there in the psalms, and and it's there, uh, and it tells us a a good deal here about this particular one. Uh, We see that it is according to the lilies, which tells us nothing, um, this is, uh, your translation may actually say, to the tune of the lilies. And so the, the original hearers would have known what this tune was, but we are left to wonder what uh, the lily tune is. I like to think of it as a slow jam, uh, you know, kind of a, a, according to the lilies, a, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song. You like it? No? Okay. Um, a mascal, you, you may recall from a previous uh, sermon in the Psalms, is uh, a, a psalm that's intended to teach. And here it tells us a number of things like the goodness of marriage, uh, the importance of the king getting married as he needed to have offspring, uh, especially as you think about the Davidic promise that he would have a son on the throne forever. And so uh, to do that, you, you need a wife. And so uh, this mascal showing us the significance of the Davidic king Uh, and his wedding. Now, we are not told precisely who this king is. Most people assume it is Solomon, uh, and it's speaking particularly of Solomon's wedding to Pharaoh's daughter uh, in 1 Kings chapter 3, because the text uh, speaks of her, it seems, as a foreigner, as one who's outside of Israel. Nevertheless, it was probably used at uh, a variety of royal weddings. Uh, More importantly, this mascal points us ahead to the ultimate king and his union with his bride, the church. 
As one writer puts it, the royal compliments suddenly blossom into divine honors. And what he's speaking of is verses uh, 6 and 7, where the king is called God. And these two verses are picked up in the book of Hebrews, referring uh, specifically to Jesus. So as we prepare to look at it, we read it historically, thinking about uh, the original audience, but we also read it messianically. We understand that all of the Old Testament is really prophetic and eschatological. It's moving toward a, a glorious climax. And in this case, uh, we, we, we think about Paul's words to, in Ephesians 5 about Christ's uh, union with the church. And we look ahead even further to uh, Jesus receiving a radiant bride at the end of Revelation. And so it is here, many of the statements that are said about the king uh, were never really fulfilled in Solomon or any other, of, uh, any other sons of his. This multi-directional praise to the Messianic king is only ultimately realized in Jesus Christ. Now, Calvin puts it well when he helps us to, to think through this passage when he says, What is said here of Solomon as a type, the holy and divine union of Christ and his church is described and set forth. Now, that's not to say we press every detail. That would be allegory where everything has to mean something else. But we do read it as analogous. Uh, it, is, it is part of this grand redemptive drama, and it is illustrating for us uh, the union of all unions, and that is Christ's love in union uh, with his bride. Uh, C.S. Lewis referred to this in his book on the Psalms, the second meaning in the Psalms. The first is very plain. It's about a royal wedding. But with the whole Bible in view, we think of what Paul says when he is echoing the, the marriage in Genesis in Ephesians 5, and he calls it the mystery. This mystery, he says, is Christ and the church. So what we have here is a beautiful picture of how the queen worships the king and the king desires the queen. Jesus loving his bride and his bride pouring out praises to the king. We are called to leave home and unite with Jesus Christ as this foreign princess does in this passage. We who are outsiders have been called to leave that outside strange land and be united to our groom who loves us and delights in us. So we got two, two, past, two parts here to this psalm as we think about it. Number one, meet the royal groom. And number two, meet the radiant bride. So first, the royal groom. Donnie already alluded to uh, verse one. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. It has a little hip-hop jingle to it, doesn't it, in, uh, in the ESV. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. So there is a, a court poet here who is being tasked to write this song for this wedding. You know, similar today to uh, if you have a, a wedding, you'll spend maybe some good money on a good photographer because you... you well, you want to look better, actually, than you actually look. Uh, you, uh, you, you pay good money for it to, to capture this sacred moment. And here, this court poet has been hired out, as it were, to, to write a song in view of this, this royal wedding. And his heart here is overflowing. In the Hebrew, it's, he bubbles up. He's bubbling forth. It's, it's uh, the idea of him thinking about the king and his beauty and this radiant bride, and he is just overflowing with uh, praise. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe or an expert scribe. Here's a worship, or here's writing as an, as an act of worship. And so that sets us up here for uh, uh, his understanding and presentation of this, of this groom. 
So we'll look at it in a couple parts here. First of all, the king's beauty is mentioned in verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. The most handsome of the sons of men. Guys, I don't know if your wife's ever said that to you. Maybe she has. It's, here, again, is an is a idyllic picture of one who stands above all of humanity. And we know that, from again, from the whole Bible, it's, it's not so much the external appearance of Jesus that we are enamored by, but we think about his attributes, we think about his excellencies, and we say he stands above all of humanity. Grace is poured upon your lips, right? Speaking of the nature of this king, he is a man of grace who speaks words of grace. Jesus is said to be the one who is full of grace and truth. Indeed, he says, God has blessed you forever, an eternal blessing. You are unique. And so from the very beginning of this song, the court poet has laid out for us a thrilling picture of the beauty of Jesus, the most handsome of the sons of men, his uniqueness. He is the ideal picture of humanity. Think about the old hymn, fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature. There's none like him. There's none beside him. We think about grace being poured upon the lips of Jesus. We hang on all of his words, don't we? No one ever spoke like this man, they said in John 7. You remember they hired the, the guys out to go kill Jesus. They came back and didn't kill him. He said, why didn't you kill him? He said, we've never heard anyone speak like that. He commands the winds and waves to obey him. He speaks with authority and not as the scribes. He has the very words of life. Grace is poured upon his lips. Now, if you're in attendance today and you're not a Christian, we are so glad you are here. And as you explore the Christian faith, one of the things I would just encourage you to do is read the Gospels. Read them over and over and see if the, the, the beauty of Jesus does not shine forth in a persuasive way in your heart. There is no one like him. There's no one who ever talked like him. He stands above all humanity. He is the fairest one, the greatest one. And so I would, I would encourage you to do that. When we move from his beauty to his might in verses 3 to 5, this, 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 this beautiful king now is, is said to be victorious, a victorious warrior. When he says in verse 3, Gird your sword from on high, O mighty one, in your splendor and in your majesty. The, the scene is shifting here to his, to his, uh, his power, Right? He says in verse 4, And your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. He has a warrior sword. This was you know, needed in uh, the days of David, in the days of uh, Solomon. Most of Solomon's reign was relatively peaceful and, and prosperous. But uh, as you read through the king's narratives, you know uh, that there's, there's a lot of battle. And our king today, the Lord Jesus... John says he's armed with the sword of God's word coming from his mouth, and he uses it in battle. And we have the sword of the Spirit, the word of God that we take up. And this king here uh, in verse 4 doesn't just, he's not a bully. He, he fights for particular causes. Did you see that? Right out victoriously for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. These virtues were embodied in Jesus. He's full of truth. 
He is the one who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. He is the righteous one who not only has righteousness, but gives righteousness to those who trust him. And his enemies are those who are enemies of these virtues. Think about the evil one himself who is a liar, who is arrogant, who is unrighteous, who tempts us in all of these ways. But Jesus, the victorious warrior, will eventually ride out finally uh, and successfully for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. And he'll establish his kingdom forever. He's very skillful as well. Notice verse 5. Your arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. It's a picture here of the king defending his people. Picture of the king executing justice. And what a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who defends his people and who will establish perfect justice. We read about earlier in, or we sang about earlier in Isaiah. The government will be on his shoulders. That hasn't happened yet, but it will. And he is successful in all of this. So Christian, understand today that you can call on this Savior in your present battle and know that he's not some puny little king, but the Lord of glory who has all powerful, who loves his bride. That's the king's might. Now verses 6 and 7 is the king's throne. And we get to uh, the Christological high point, I think, of the psalm. As mentioned, the writer of Hebrews cites verses 6 and 7 as applying to Jesus. Interesting side note for those of you who want to do some reading later. In Hebrews 1, the writer cites Psalm 2, Psalm 45, and Psalm 110. Three of the four psalms we're looking at in this series. And he cites here Psalm 4 and uh, Psalm uh, verses 6 and 7 uh, to refer to the deity of Jesus. And so here's what the, the text says Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, you might think that's just a shift to talk about the king's God, right? So Psalmist does that sometimes. You're talking about this and you shift, make a hard shift to th- talk about God. But you notice in verse 7, it says, therefore, God, your God has anointed you. So what's being said in verse 6 is that the king is God. Now, again, in the original setting, the king did represent God. That's David and Solomon. They were representative. They were God's sons, as we looked at last week. But this theme climaxes in Jesus, who is truly fully God, who is who, who, is, who, is, who is fully uh, divine. And that's what the, the author of Hebrews uh, points out, that this king his, this is God, and he reigns forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. So there is no corruption, not an ounce of corruption, in Jesus' kingdom. And then he says something of his character, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now, you go back and read all of the Israel's kings, and you realize that none of them did this perfectly. In fact, most of them failed miserably. But Jesus Christ loves righteousness and hates wickedness. That's, that's, those are two important aspects of holiness. That we not only hate wickedness and say no to sin, but that we lo- actually love righteousness. And so we are to imitate our king in these ways. The one who loves righteousness and hates wickedness, who reigns forever 
on this throne. Well, it's a glorious text, isn't it? Verses 8 and 9 talks about the king's glory. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond companions. <clears throat> In these royal psalms, you hear this anointing language a lot. We looked at that last week. And here it is said to, that, that God has anointed him with the oil of gladness. I don't have a name for my beard oil that I make, but I think this is a good, a good option, don't you? I'm going to start selling the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So the king reigns, and he reigns happily. He has been anointed by the father who delights in him and the son who delights in the father who takes his scepter with gladness. Your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. These were expensive uh, perfumes you can read about in Song of Songs uh, that are used of kings. And here it says that Solomon is, if it is indeed first about Solomon, decked out in his robes. You know, usually in a wedding, it's the bride that receives the compliments, and that's the way it ought to be, along with the mother-in-law. But, but we, sometimes you would tell the groom, hey, pal, you clean up pretty well, right? You, you smell okay. Well, you should try this more often. It, it, looks, it looks good on you, Uncle Rico. Like, well done. <laughs> well, can you imagine Solomon? When Jesus wanted to uh, give an illustration of what the beautiful flowers look like, he said Solomon, who's decked out in all of his glory, aren't decked out like these flowers. Imagine him on his wedding day, what this must have been like. This guy, this guy would have been bougie. And he, he's, got the, he's got the scents with him, right? The, the aloes and the myrrh. There, there's jazz playing in the background. It's a, it's a big occasion, isn't it? And then we meet the ladies. And now we're, we're getting closer to the bride and groom coming together. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. And at your right hand, here she is, stands the queen in the gold of Ophir. It's most likely a, a mine in uh, Saudi Arabia where Solomon got his, his gold. But notice the important position of the king. She's at his right hand. And she is standing as if to say she stands above all other ladies. And again, analogous in many ways to the fact that we are seated with our Christ already. And we see the, now the affection between the groom and the bride being developed by the court poet, the royal groom. He's praised by this poet, and today he's praised by the numberless worshipers in heaven. There is none like him who loves righteousness and hates wickedness, the victorious warrior who is reigning from his heavenly throne, full of grace and truth, splendor, and glory, and he loves his bride. That means he loves you. If you're in him, he loves his bride. We see this now in the second part of the psalm. Meet the radiant bride. Verse 10 and 11 are special. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. And the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. We see here the language in many ways of Genesis, don't we, of, as we often say, leaving and cleaving, that you leave your family, not, not in, a, in a hateful way, 
a spiteful way, but you, you forsake them. The language is strong because it is a decisive commitment that you're making in marriage. You leave and you cleave to this, to this groom if you're the bride. And this language is said here of this particular uh, bride-to-be, that she is to forget her people and her father's house. Again, I think a beautiful picture of the gospel, especially if you think about the stranger language that's being used here. We were outsiders and strangers, alienated from the promises of God, and we have said goodbye to the world, and we have united to Jesus Christ. And this king delights in us, or the text says here, he desires us. You see in a couple places in the Old Testament of the marriage language being used in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, uh, Hosea, and so on, and Zephaniah, how the king is singing over his bride. We sing to him today. He sings over us today. The Lord Jesus loves his bride. Verse 12 shows that this is an international spectacle, and of course this would have been uh, in the case of, of Solomon. The, the people of Tyre, which was a real traveling center in uh, the ancient world, the coastal town, will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of people. So th- this uh, wedding is being celebrated from afar. People are bringing expensive gifts. And so you've got this picture of, again, praise, international fame. And what a spectacle. All of it a foreshadowing of the glorious day in which the kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor to King Jesus not hard to find the gospel analogies here. All glorious, verse 13, is the princess in her chamber with robes of interwoven with gold. And many color robes she has led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. Our king loves his queen. He is delighted in his, key, in his queen. In fact, someone has said that the overarching story of the Bible is kill the dragon and get the girl. Jesus overcoming the evil one and reclaiming a bride for himself, the queen. And she's described here with her external appearance. It's interesting that uh, the author doesn't speak of her physical beauty the way Song of Solomon does. You know, everything is described in Song of Solomon. (laughs) I mean, everything. (laughs) That's a PG-13 study we're going to have to have. Um, Even her teeth, it's like a flock of sheep. Great pickup line for you guys. Crest whitening strips right there, man. Some special ones. Here the, the focus is on her adornment on her and the company that she speaks, both of which speak of, of her dignity. Of This is her company. This is what she is dressed like. Many colored robes. She's led to the king. So we picture the procession happening now. The big moment. The moment everyone has, is waiting for, she's got the companions following behind her. And verse 15 gives us the emotion that is felt in this ceremony. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. With joy and with gladness. It's a happy and successful procession. I, I, and I hope if you're planning on getting married or some of you I know are engaged, that it is indeed a happy moment and a successful procession because I've seen some unsuccessful processions. I was in, I was the best man actually in a particular wedding of my friend Benji and they played the song for the bride to, to come down the aisle and she never came. The door shut and Benji's a, he's a, he's a pastor in Florida now, real high pitched country voice, you know, 
He's like, where's she at? Where's she at? And it got to this very awkward moment. He's like, do you want me to tell all these people to sit down? I was like, no, I think she'll come. But anyway, she was in the bathroom, and no one went to get her and told her it was, it was time. So this, this is a successful procession as the, the, the bride is being brought down the aisle, and he's laying eyes on, on his bride here. Again, very similar kind of language of the joy of a wedding day to Song of Solomon, chapter 3. All of it a foretaste, again, of the ultimate union when the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. There will be joy and gladness. Jonathan Edwards, the late theologian, said, God created the world to provide a spouse and a kingdom for his son. And the setting up of the kingdom of Christ and the spiritual marriage of the spouse to him is what the whole creation labors and travails in pain to bring to pass. All of history moving to this union. And Christ receives his bride. Final words to the king in verse 16 and 17. In place of your father shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. Again, the importance of passing on this legacy was obvious. The kings were uh, to, to bear sons who would, who would be kings. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. In all these royal psalms, you also have this emphasis on the nations. Because our king is not a tribal king, but he is the king and lord of the nations. And he will be remembered forever. So indeed, I think the court poet gets it right. This is a pleasing theme. What a pleasurable theme this is to think about today, church, that we are loved by Jesus Christ. We have been pursued by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ laid down his life for his bride. He loves his church. He only knows one way to love, and that is wholeheartedly. He desires and loves his people. He loves his church. He's going he's to receive this bride, and we will be without spot or blemish as he receives us. There's much to praise him for today in this. Final reflections. If you're not a Christian, again, and you're here, and considering perhaps what it is that sets Christianity apart from other religions, I want you to see, and I hope you have seen, that one of the primary ways we understand the faith is with this picture of marriage. You won't find this in any other religion. This union, you see, becoming a Christian, you enter a relationship. You enter a union. You, you come in, actually, to the best of all relationships as you come to know and be united to Jesus Christ. The Bible begins and ends with a wedding. All of history is moving to this great wedding, and you can be united to Jesus Christ by faith. Jesus' first miracle is at a wedding. He's saying something significant about that moment. That the king is here, and there's something significant about a wedding. There's something significant about a marriage, and that is that I'm the royal groom, and I'm going to have a bride for myself. So we would, we would love to talk to you about becoming a Christian, but placing your faith in Jesus, being united to him. If you are a Christian today, then give your king praise. He is to receive the praises of his people. Tim Keller puts it well when he says, we should be as smitten with his beauty as a new spouse, for that is what we are. We must let our marriages, he says, reveal Christ, not replace Christ. And if we are not married but wish to be, we should remember 
that we already have the only spousal love that will truly fulfill. This is our Christ. Only one will fulfill. Jesus Christ. So worship your king. Delight in your king as you experience his delight in you. Praise be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Father, what a picture you've given us of the royal king. We're grateful today to know that we are loved and treasured by Jesus Christ, not because we are worthy of it, but because this king is full of grace. This king who laid down his life for us, this king who is coming back for us. Lord Jesus, we give you praise, and we say with the psalmist, your name will be remembered forever, and we will remember it now in the Lord's Supper. Receive the praises from your people even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen.